Lloyd Rubel's life changed when he met the legendary Herman Lucerne, known as the Last Frontiersman. Lucerne knew the Everglades better than anyone and passed his invaluable knowledge on to Rubel. On today's podcast, we sit with Lloyd as he takes us into places few have ever gone. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Lloyd, it's so great to have you on the podcast. I've, I've known you for a long time. Uh, your reputation is impeccable. It's deep uh, with your relationship with the Everglades. And uh, we'll talk about your induction into the BTT Circle of Honor here in a little bit. But uh, let's just start with your house in your backyard. You don't not only love the Everglades, you live the Everglades. Yeah, uh uh, in 1992, we had Hurricane Andrew, and uh, I had a little grove back there in the backyard with mango trees and avocado trees, and they all got uprooted, laying on the ground. We hauled all that stuff away and had a huge yard. And, uh, you know, I was trying to think what we could do with the yard, and a friend of mine, Cliff Cundy, of blessed memory he's not with us anymore uh he said what would you like to do at the yard i said i'd love to have a pond back here and create a little everglades back here he said let's do it i said you have the knowledge to do it he said yeah he said i studied hydrology and all that stuff he says we could do it just the two of us so that started it uh we took leaves and we made a pattern of the perimeter of the pond and then started digging and digging and planting and transplanting fish well, well first thing we we dug out the the pond then we right. took all the dirt from the pond and made a berm right to go go around the pond and uh, we didn't plant it yet and we had to put some concrete on the bottom and all the concrete trucks were going by and uh just like you in Key West, when you'd get some uh, bait from the shrimp boats, right? They'd have concrete left over from a job, and they'd have to, they'd have to dump it. So we'd flag them down, give them some beer, and they'd dump give it. us the concrete, and they, we'd dump it in the pond in the places where we needed 
oh, to fight the percolation. Right. So then we built the pond, then we finally got to fill it with water, built the waterfall. And then the next thing you know, Cliff says, well, he says, we got to put some fertilizer in there. I said, what? He said, yeah, you got to fertilize it to seed it. Okay, so we put the fertilizer in, and the beautiful clear water turned to green muck. <laughs> I said, Cliff, what are you thinking? And then, sure enough, after about a week, it cleared up. Water was beautiful. He says, okay, now we could plant it. And, and uh, we did. I mean, we, it's amazing. You walk out there, you have a little you know, feeding platform. You've got snook. You've got a, a 20, two 20-pound tarpon in there, and you're downtown Miami. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. Yeah, people drive by; they have no idea what's behind the Absolutely what's behind not. the fence. I mean, I asked you to come up to Boca to do this interview, and he said, "Nah, I'd rather do it here." Now I see why you wanted me to see your your yeah. your your yeah. little paradise here. Well, you walk in the front door and you see this big painting, and uh, which is was in Herman Lucerne's house when Hurricane uh, Andrew struck, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was in his Florida room and. Uh, it got pretty beat up after the hurricane. Of course, you know, Her- uh, Herman died during the hurricane. He was trying to board up a, a window from the inside that had been violated by the hurricane. And he had a heart attack while he was boarding up the window. So uh, I went by the next day to see, you know, what, what needed to be done. And this painting, which he always promised, that he'd give to me was there getting wet, you know? And, uh, so I brought it, brought it home, told his sister about it, that I had it. And she said, Herman always said he wanted you to have it. Yeah, so I said, sure. It's a highwayman. I think it's the only four by eight highwayman painting ever, ever made. You saw it. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful view it, of it, the it is Everglades. Beautiful. Well, we're going to talk about your relationship with Herman here in a second, but, um, Bonefish Tarpon Trust (BTT) is honoring you this year, this spring, with the uh, the Stewart's uh, the, the Stewardship Award. And let me just write something that uh, the President uh, Jim McDuffie sent me uh, regarding this award that you're receiving. He says Lloyd Rubel is a great champion of the resource that anglers hold dear. Over the years, Lloyd has witnessed many changes impacting the water habitats and fish populations uh, populations of South Florida in the Keys. He resolved to do something about it, whether it's working on the front lines or behind the scenes to influence change, you'll find, you'll find Lloyd Rubel, the angler, conservationist, community leader, and flat steward. BTT is honored to recognize your work, Lloyd Rubel, to, per, to protect and defend the industry, the fishery, with the 2023 Flats Stewardship Award. I mean, it's a, it's a circle of honor. It's, well, the, it's their Hall of Fame. What do you think about I mean, this? I was, I was blown away when I heard I was selected because I, you know, I really don't think of myself as that caliber of a person to be elected to the circle of honor, but I guess other people do, and that's, that's very, re, very rewarding. And it all goes back to Herman. Herman got me interested in doing it because Herman Herman also did a lot uh, and uh, was for active. Sure. For sure. Tell me about who Herman Lucerne was. Well, 
Herman was a, he had a packing plant, uh, avocado and mango packing plant. At one time, he owned over 2,000 acres in the uh, redlands of uh, avocado and mango trees. He was doing very well. Then Hurricane Donna hit, wiped out all his groves. That was in 60-something? 60, 60, I think it was 60. Right. And, of course, he had all these mortgages on the land that he couldn't, couldn't pay without the without the the plants so so I, he had to sell just about all of the all of the property but he had a love of fishing he was from Pittsburgh Pennsylvania I'm from Wilkesboro area Pennsylvania and uh, he was in the army and saw action in Europe and came down came down to Florida to live in in Florida City, and uh, at a fruit stand on Chrome Avenue when he was young, became mayor of Florida City. But he loved the Everglades, and he'd drive down. His home wasn't far from the old road, dirt road that took you right. to Flamingo. So he used to go there all every day, and he became friendly. I can't remember with the guy who taught with the name of the guy who taught him, but. Uh, he learned Hell's Bay. He told me the guy had an inboard and he would go back to Hell's Bay with an inboard. I don't know how in the world he did that, but but he did. And then they had, Herman had canoes stashed everywhere because you'd go to one of the canoes, get out of the boat, and then go canoe fishing. It's crazy that he did that back then because the fishing was, was epic out front of Flamingo. You didn't have to go deep into Hell's Bay and in the back country. Well, that's true, but if you wanted solace and you wanted quiet, you didn't want to see other boats running around, it's beautiful back there. It's just so, so serene. Uh, I could understand why he did it. And yeah. the fishing back there was fabulous also. It was the right. same. And, it, you know, it just takes you, you know, like half hour to get there. It's not like it's a long ride or anything. Right. It's yeah. just remote. At remote now they have the uh, Herman Lucerne Memorial Tournament, and the trophy given to the winners of the tournament is the Lloyd Rubel uh, Trophy. Yeah, I had two of my friends, Kevin Burns and uh, Richard Trotta, surprised me one year, and they had it made. David Worth made it. It's a beautiful trophy. It's in Florida Keys Outfitters. Right. And it has all seven species species carved out of wood. On the uh, trophy, yeah. So that, that you know, that just says so much about you and your relationship with Herman. Do you remember when you first met him, and and how he influenced you to become oh, a backcountry oh, Everglades guy? I certainly guy? did because I used to fish offshore. That that's that's what when I first started fishing, I fished offshore, and I was off every. I was fortunate to be off every Wednesday from the day I started practice, and every Wednesday I'd want to go want to go fishing. And, you know, if the wind was blowing three to five, you're sort of if you should, because I only had a 20-foot dusky. Should I go or shouldn't I go? And if you go, it could be miserable right. out there. And if you don't go, you're miserable because you couldn't, <laughs> you're right, you couldn't, couldn't go. go. So you're miserable <laughs> both way. ways. So uh, Dennis' friend, Sam Porco, invited me to go fish Flamingo. He knew Herman because they both lived in the same area. And I went and... He introduced me to Herman, took me backcountry fishing, and as soon as he took me back there, I fell in love with it. I said, 
this is what I want to do. You were home. Yeah, and there was another guy with me, Ken Grossman, who was a friend at the time. He got he fell in love with it quickly, and he went and he bought a dolphin, eighteen foot dolphin with a, I think it had one hundred thirty five or one hundred fifty horsepower more. But he, but he didn't know anything about handling what to do with a boat. He didn't, right. So he'd invite me all the time to go with him. So the three of us would go, and the first thing we learned was the rivers. We learned the Harney River, Broad River, Broad Creek, Rogers River, Wood River, where every oyster bar was, when to be there. And we used to catch so many fish. And it, we had some great times. But after a while, Kenny wanted to show his prowess, his ability now. So he started inviting other people. And he'd invite me. And Kenny would be fishing. I would be the mate. Oh, helping no. out the other person, you yeah, know, no. which I didn't mind because I wanted, you know, I I enjoy watching other people catch fish. I don't have to, I have to catch the fish, and uh, so I started fishing with Herman by myself a little more as Kenny branched off and started doing his own thing on the rivers, and uh, Herman says, "Well, would you like to learn Hell's Bay?" I said, "I want to learn anything you're willing to teach me." He said, well, let's start going to Hell's Bay. So we'd go back in his own Mona Hull boat. It was a 20-foot with a 200-horsepower inline Merc. And we'd go back there as far as he could take it and then jump out, get in a canoe, paddle, go catch many six- to nine-pound redfish as you want. And, and Never see anybody. Yeah, never, never would see another person. And then I... Then I figured I could build an aluminum boat that could go anywhere that canoe right. canoe So I had one built in Arkansas. And they delivered it here, and I took Herman out in it. We never had to get in that canoe again. No more paddling. No more paddling. <laughs> we uh, went. We went as far back as we could go with the canoe, and and we did it for. I fished with them for like eighteen, nineteen years. Uh, we cut out, cut out creeks. Uh, we wouldn't ruin the ruin the tree. And I, you know, I really think that people not going back there now. There's no drainage. It, you know, it's all closing in. The mangroves. You know, mangroves are a good thing. Right. But they also decrease the water and the fishing back there. There's a place it, it called. Block, the, it blocks the 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 flow, the water the flow, flow of the water. Right. And. and uh, lane. There was a Lane River rookery with beautiful ponds in there that the park used to go to. They'd have to portage canoes to get there and everything. Right. And we knew a way to get there by boat. And we'd go by boat and go fishing yeah. there. But it was difficult to get to, so we stopped going back there. And I went back there. The last time I went back there, it was all, all mangroves. No, no ponds, no it, nothing. It takes there. a big effort to And then uh, there's no that. roosting area. It's no good for the birds either because there's no food source in those ponds for the birds to eat. And now there's no rookery there anymore. So, you know, I'm not a biologist or anything like that. But, you know, I see uh, mangroves are a good thing, but in some places they get overgrown too. You get right. the mangrove forest, but they get rid of the water. They create land, but they get rid of the water. So yeah, right. Uh, so it all depends on what you want, I guess. Yeah. So initially, um, because it can be quite intimidating 
back there. And back in the day when there was no GPS, you probably learned all this stuff with aerial, aerial photographs, right? Yeah, there, there were uh, architectural firms that had aerial photographs, but there'd be clouds over the area you want to see and stuff. And it, it was difficult, but I, every night I'd be studying those aerials to learn. I mean, I was a real student of right. that. Do you ever get lost back there? No, you know, I've never got lost. I had trouble one day where the engine broke down and I called Herman. I had a push pull and I put the VHF radio with the antenna at the top of the push pull and hold it up. And I was able to get through to Herman, called somebody who called Herman. Told That's another thing. When I started fishing with Herman, none of those places had names. So I said, Herman, how can we talk to each other and say, hey, how can, you, how can you come find me? Yeah, yeah, how, yeah, and where the fish are. Where'd you fish yesterday? Oh, I fished over here. I made a lot. I said, we have to name these bays. So we named Gaps and Snook Bay, and, and we had all kinds of names uh, for the different bays so we could communicate. Right. So I got stuck right outside of Snook Bay, and I called them, and he here came. He came. He, here he came, and pulled me out that was the only time i ever and i was borrowed his other boat it wasn't my boat that i got <laughs> stuck because he he didn't take real good care of his uh of his stuff stuff um tell me about the houseboat he used to have i he had a houseboat called the uh snookery in flamingo right and ted jurassic had a houseboat next to herman so we knew each other and, and uh We'd, we'd go on uh, houseboat trips. We had certain places where we'd anchor in Oyster Bay and Whitewater Bay or take it all the way up to Tarpon Bay and spend a few days. I mean, it was, those were wonderful times. What was and the then, fishing like back then? It was in, incredible. I mean, when I first started fishing Hell's Bay, I would say it was 90% redfish. And what, what year now was Now it's 90% snook. And what year was that? uh 76 something like that. long time ago yeah and obviously yeah. probably i can't imagine you guys seeing anybody back there no no we we, we never saw anybody yeah. so the new film have you seen the new film about with steve huff it's yes named i huff. did yes i did huff. i did it's fantastic when i when i see him pulling his skiff you know through the mangroves and trying to you know separate you know the the branches it, what, what do you think when you see that Oh, I think of what I what we used to do all the time. That was your yeah. life. Oh, that was my life back there. And what we used to do, you know, when we want to open up an area, you could look, you could look at the bottom. If you see shells, you know, there's a lot of flow going through there, but there'd be a mangrove wall. So you had to cut a hole through it. So you had to cut a hole through it. And and we didn't, and and so we did, but we didn't want to get lost coming back. So we used to get toilet paper. We put toilet paper at the entrance, you know, drape it over sure. one of the branches, go through, and at the end we'd put toilet paper and, you know, just keep going. Yeah, I was one. thinking ribbons, you no. know. No, no ribbons are rib permanent. You know? Right. So coming back, we started coming back one day, went way back there, and we we're coming, trying to come back and can't find any toilet paper. <laughs> I said, what's going on here? And then we'd find the thing, we'd find the cuttings and know that that's where we came through. 
and we go through and still no toilet paper. Well, finally we made ourselves, got, got out and we're on our way to another area and we see this osprey nest covered with toilet paper. Oh. toilet paper it was great <laughs> nesting material oh, that's so so he picked up all your markings so, so now what we do what we do after that is we just break off a branch just break it and let it hang right and your eyes pick it up immediately that hey the know, difference it, of the it, angle yeah the difference of the angle so yeah. we started doing that when we'd explore um Talk about um, Ted Jurassic and Herman uh, Memorial Plaque. Well, uh, so he was buried out there. No, he wasn't buried out there. He wanted mm. to be buried out there, and his sister wanted him buried out there. But he had a brother who was very religious, who didn't believe in cremation, and he wouldn't agree to have Herman cremated because Herman has cousins, brother-in-laws back there, you know, mm -hmm. that he would uh, spread the ashes out there. But when it came time for him, his brother just wouldn't have any of it. And so he's, just, so he's buried. Well, we're in, just going to drop his body back there. He's buried. <laughs> he's buried in a cemetery in Homestead. Mm -hmm. So but, where was that plaque place? One of his favorite right, fishing grounds? Right before the gap. It's, we call it the gap. Gap number one. It's right there. It was a, he had a bottle of Grand McNish, which was his favorite scotch. Uh huh. And uh, there's a plaque that they that Ted had made. It says Herman uh, Herman Lucerne, the dates he was born and died, and it said the man of the Everglades. And it's there. The bottle's gone. I guess the line broke or something. Uh, I, I'll replace it one day when I go go back there right but uh ted jurassic was a, a big member of uh uh of the everglades and and, and you guys uh, yeah he he well he was a big you know, pal wasn't he yeah i mean it's a funny story because i didn't get along real well with ted in the beginning for, and i never knew what the reason was but even flip was a little distant to me because i never went back with them with them to so them. you weren't part of the brotherhood yet? No. Well, Herman made me, told me, don't show it to anybody. You know, he made me promise that I wouldn't show the Everglades to anybody. Interesting. And I, I was true to my true to my word. And so I never, even though I was friendly with Flip, I liked him and Ted, I just never went back there. And they thought... I think that maybe I was selfish or something like that, right. that I wouldn't share, share any information with them. And then uh, I think I told Flip, well, and without me knowing, Herman would go out with Ted and Flip. He wouldn't tell me that he'd take Oh, them. he was already showing those he guys. He was already showing them, them, but he would never tell me that. He just said, don't, don't show anybody. and. And so there is a little distance there, but one one time uh, we were going to do a houseboat trip to Tarpon Bay, and Flip and said, "You gotta, Lloyd's a great guy. You gotta, you gotta meet him, and I mean, see right. how he is. Yeah, you gotta give him a chance." So we went to this house on the houseboat in Tarpon Bay, and there was this 
terrible storm, lightning storm that came through. The boats were getting, you know, rain. You know, the they had we had to make sure the they were tied off good, and we had to go out in the rain and stuff like that. And I was doing doing all that stuff, and Ted saw that I wasn't just going to sit in the houseboat while they were doing all that right. stuff. And we developed a relationship after that and uh and uh i went fishing with ted many times after that he was was so funny he had a spot he'd he'd fish this area that's real tough to navigate you know he had one spot it was a special tree and he named that tree not to worry <laughs> not to worry. He said, "There's not to worry." We're over. Okay. Uh, and the way he speaks, he's yeah, awesome. Not to worry. We did a podcast with Ted. And he, was, he was speaking about his life. And oh, that was one of my favorite. He was. Podcasts. I mean, that, he, that's the one. Ted Jurassic's life, you know, is just remarkable in every way. And uh, everybody should listen to Ted Jurassic's uh, story. You know, escaping the Hungarian Revolution and how he made his way to the United States and how great. Uh, of an inventor he's he's one of the brightest guys i know if there's ever a problem or something that had to be figured out he'd be the man you want to go into the backcountry with that guy yeah in case you got stuck somehow he'd figure a way to get out well i helped him a little in the the back he always had trouble going around curves corners and when he went out with me in my boat as soon as i get ready to go around the corner i give it a little gas and it'll dig in to so, turn it, turn to, the bow. To turn the bow, he right. says. Wow, he said, that's neat the way you do that. He says, I never, never, never knew that. And I was impressed with myself that I got maybe to teach him one thing because he's one of the brightest guys yeah. I know. Let's go back to Hurricane uh, Andrew. Um, you were right in the eye of it. It yeah. came over. Yeah, it came over this house. In this area. It came, came over this house and, and destroyed Herman's house. And uh, and killed Herman. Yeah, killed Herman. He was one of the casualties of of Hurricane Andrew, and it took me a while. I mean, I was so close to him, you know, fishing two and three days a week for for that many years. We really, you know, it took me a while to get get over that. It was it was tough. What was the hurricane like? Did you stay here? Oh, we were in. Yeah, we're in the hall there. My ears were were popping, windows were crashing, and it was a horrible thing. I, I don't think I'd ever want to sit through another hurricane. What kind of damage did this house? Uh... Well, I had roof damage, window damage, door damage, uh, walls wet that had to be Replaced. torn down. And my, and Flip, Flip's house was just absolutely destroyed right the roof came and off i felt house. so bad because i wanted to help flip but at the same time i had so much going on right in my house i couldn't i couldn't do it yeah because he, he really had i mean he was living in his pickup truck for a while right uh, and uh i really felt bad but but a lot of people were in that yeah in that shape after that hurricane um i kind of wonder that did you guys know the Everglades in that country better than um, the guys that were part of uh, FWC and the Rangers? Oh sure. Oh yeah. Did they, they learn from you? Did they? Have no, to... they didn't know how to. They didn't know how to get back there. They, like you were talking about earlier, they'd put red tape on trees. Right. And go back there one day. One day I'm in the back. I see all this tape, red tape on the trees. 
So I started removing Oh, them. no. I started removing the tape. And as I was com coming out, I saw this uh, ranger. ranger. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking the tape off the trees. He says, well, I put them there so I could find my way. I said, you're not allowed to do that. I said, that's against the park yeah. rules. You're trashing, trashing the Everglades. Here's how you get home. Go down there, make a right and then a left, and that'll get you out to the river and you could go home. Right. So I come back to the uh, to the ramp, and there's the head ranger, the chief ranger there. He says, Dr. Rubel, I heard you had a little run-in with a ranger. Well, I didn't know it was a ranger. He didn't have his clothes on. Right. I said, no, I didn't have any trouble with a ranger. He says, well, we had a ranger back there in a canoe doing a little exploring. He says, I understand you took down all his red tags and told him not to put them up there anymore. I said, yeah. I said, I don't want to go back there and see red tags and mangroves. I said, that. I said, you shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing that. He right. says, Dr. Ruby says, you let the us do the enforcing. He says, you could fish, but let us do the enforcing. <laughs> please, please don't be a ranger. I said, okay. All right. uh, you, you have a, you know, a list of a number of things here. You say here, uh, Coke cans and alligators. What's yeah. that all about? Well, <laughs> we, we, when we find a good spot catching snook, a lot of times an alligator would be in the area trying to eat the snook or get to the boat and harassing all the fish and everything like that. But if you take an empty Coke can, I don't recommend it. I wouldn't do it anymore. And you put it in the water, it'll float. And the alligator would go up and grab the Coke can and crunch it. It would crunch it. It would kind of be like a little kid with a rattle. And he'd swim away, go into the mangroves, and we'd be fishing. We'd hear... <laughs> chewing on the Coke cans. Chewing on it. He wouldn't eat it, but he just liked the sound of the right. of the can. Do you see any saltwater crocs back there? Uh, well, not not in the back, not in Hell's Bay. You know, Lake Ingram, out front you see uh, saltwater crocodiles. I, I remember we see used to see them over in Flamingo and the channel going out. You know. Now I see more at our golf course nearing Bay than I do at Flamingo. They're all it's over. It's crazy. Yeah. You just saw that woman on the news that just got nipped by a, an, an alligator. Yeah. Walking her dog. Um, got, yeah. We, they're in the Keys, too. They're behind my home in the Keys. You had a good relationship with uh, Joe DiMaggio. How'd that come to be? And well, you know, I met so many uh, well-known people through fishing, more so than my practice of oral surgery. I think I, I, I got more opportunities through fishing than I did through oral surgery. There was this guy, Nick Nicolosi, who who wanted to fish the Everglades. So he did his own research and he found out that Herman was the man and he called up Herman, would you take me and my buddy Joe DiMaggio fishing? So Herman said, oh sure. Herman being Italian, sure. Joe DiMaggio being the bomber, he said, sure, I'm gonna, uh, I'll take you. So he did, he came down and he took him fishing and then he started asking me to come along on the trips to help help out. And then as Herman got older, I started taking them them out. Do you ever talk about Some Marilyn Monroe? Monroe? That's one thing uh, he wouldn't you couldn't talk to him about. It's fun. I, I he came down and stayed at my house in the Keys and he was on the 
on the deck. And Nick says, you should do a video and interview him like you're interviewing me. Right. So I, he said, but just don't mention Marilyn Monroe. And I did. And I can't find that tape. I mean, it was a, you know, you talked about everything except Marilyn Monroe. I mean, we'd be in the house. Nick was a cook. He's Italian cook. He loved to cook. <laughs> I did the dishes and DiMaggio had to dry, dry the dishes. So I have a video of him in his skivvies. Drying. drying dishes, being a regular guy, you know. Interesting. So we we had a lot of interesting. He ever, wasn't a really accomplished fisherman. He just liked being out be away like, from everybody, where because right. everybody everywhere he would go, somebody would come up to him and interrupt him. And, right. And was uh, Ted? Did you fish with Ted Williams? I never fished he with was Ted in the Williams. Keys a but, lot. but I'll tell you a story about. Yeah, I had met him, but I never fished with him. I was supposed to be go down to Keys. Nick called me up one day and he says, we're going to come down. Can you go fishing? So I said, I could go fishing Saturday, but I can't be with you Friday because I've got surgery scheduled. So he says, well, Joe and I will just stay in your house, you know. So they went down to Worldwide Sportsman, which was that little tackle shop then. And George Hummel was in there. And George Hummel sees DiMaggio walk into his tackle shop. So he says, so he said to Nick, he said, would you mind watching the store for five minutes? I'll be right back. I have to go somewhere. So he leaves the house and he comes back with Ted Williams. So in the shop is Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Nick, and George. They had a nice conversation. Ted Williams invited Joe and Nick to come to their house for dinner that night. Nick said they were talking about how you could tell whether a guy's throwing a curve or a fastball. And both of them said, nothing to it. He said, you just look at the strings on the baseball. And if the strings are straight, you know, it's a fastball. If they're, It's crazy because that I ball's mean, they, going over 80 miles right, an exactly. hour. Exactly. Close to 90. 90 miles an hour. But they were able to see the strings on the baseball. They had such good vision. And they both admitted admitted that. But anyway, I could have been there. That was one of the missed, right. missed things. That, um, who other uh, person in your life that uh, may have inspired you uh, in your fishing, in your conservation efforts? Well, I, I think I have to credit it all to uh, Herman. Because early on, you know, because before I met Herman, the park wanted to make Hills Bay and that whole area we fish kayaks and paddle only and Herman fought that and there was a judge by the name of Judge Mertens who helped him out a lot and he fought that with the park and they decided not to do it well wouldn't you know it came up again on the last management plan that they wanted to make that all kayak and canoe fishing I couldn't go back there in my boat right. anymore and there's so much space back there. Why not? And well, it's, unac- it's, it's unaccessible. Well, they had a superintendent at that time who listened. Before that, none of the superintendents, they always set a plan. They'd have public hearings, but they always knew what they wanted to do. But this particular superintendent, Richard Kimball, Dick Kimball, was fantastic. He listened and made decisions based on what he heard. So I said, Dick, I said, 
you got to come with me and see the area before you before you do the management plan. So he got in my boat and I took him everywhere. I took him in Hell's Bay. I mean, we spent like four hours riding around in the back country. Places that you would uh, never be able to get to in a canoe. I, because it's so far away. Right. You know? and, then, and then you have to be able to get out. Sure. You know? So he said, he said, you know, Lloyd, he said, I'm glad you brought me back here because this area of the park is beautiful and people should be able to enjoy it like you do. And if it was just canoes and kayaks, nobody would ever see it. Mm-hmm. Nobody would ever, nobody ever used it. So they took it out of the management plan. Nice. And so I felt like I, I made some contribution. For sure. You know. Um, the and, rest of the world, we see such big changes with the water quality. And we're talking about Captains for Clean Water, all the great work they're doing, uh, t- the lack of fresh water. Um, have you seen a big difference uh, in the Everglades and where you fish uh, over the years? Oh, sure. In the, the numbers of fish, uh, the amount of uh, vegetation back there. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a lot different. It's not like it, nowhere is it like it used to be. But, but you could see the difference. It hasn't affected <clears throat> the quality. Uh, you know, the water's still clear, clear as a bell back there, and it's still nice. I don't know why. I, I'm trying, can't figure out where the flow comes from, you know, that, that keeps it clean. And right. then in Florida Bay, you have all that algae and everything like that. It's, the water's still pretty clean. Do you though. think the salinity is a little bit higher? No, no, because I do, I use a salinity, I check the salinity, I test it when I go back there, and you still get completely fresh water, and you catch snook bass in the same water, tarpon. Right. You know, so you catch them in the same water. I don't see any difference in the salinity. That area is mostly, uh, it's not tidal. It's mostly wind-driven. Uh-huh. When you have the king high tides, right. then you do get an elevation of the water. But the water stays pretty stagnant. Is there, so, is there a line that a different, uh, uh, that's different with the salinity versus the yeah, fresh well, water, Herm, and the fishing may change yeah, with when that I, line? When I was fishing with Herman, he used to like to fish the salinity line, where, where fresh water meets salt water. Was the fishing better on that line? Yeah, yeah. It's almost so, like a tide, um, a like tide a, line on a, the offshore stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, the edge of the blue water, stuff like that. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. So, And so once that, you got further into the freshwater, you're probably catching largemouth bass, yes, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the largemouth bass. Yeah. It's pretty cool because you can yeah. really pick your species depending on the water. Exactly. It's, it's, incre- it's incredible. Um, where would you like to go with this conversation at this point? Well, I, you know, I, obviously there's a lot of things to be done with, uh, with uh, uh, clean water, getting, getting some fresh water down the Everglades. I see they just broke down for the, uh, broke ground for the Everglades uh, Reservoir. Uh, and uh, I'd like to see that done. And I'd like to see us get more land so we could purify that water so it could go to the park. Right. I mean, just because we're storing the water there, doesn't mean that it could go to the park unless it meets the standards, the federal standards right. for uh, phosphorus. So I'm just hoping that, that we could do that. Right. And, and, uh, and when 
you know, I was originally with the, at, towards the end of the Everglades Protection Association, then they became, then they gave all their funds to the uh, coastal, who was then called Florida Conservation mm -hmm. Association. I was on the board with uh, the forming committee with Pete Peacock, Alex Jernigan, and a couple others to form the Florida Conservation Association which I thought was gonna be heavy into cons conservation, but they're heavy into fish, you know, conservation, hatcheries, things like that. They're, they, because I guess it's a political organization, they didn't wanna get involved with, with uh, uh, problems with algae and releases and things like that because they never, they casually mention it, but they never really strongly supported it and that kind of bothered me. I was a life member of the right. coastal. So uh, a guy by the name of Chris Maroney had a home in Stewart and he was fed up because he had all this algae around the back of his house and everything. And I guess he did pretty good in the tech, technical world and he uh, seeded bull sugar. And at first I was kind of offended at bull sugar and then the more I thought about it, you know, at that time, not many politicians or anybody was listening about the problem. And uh, bull sugar became very vocal. Right. The making demands and and uh, picketing, you know, going, going to special political events and yelling, clean the water and stuff like that. And that's what I think really kicked off, kicked off the movements that are available today, the now our Neverglades coalition formed. Right. And, you know, vote water became, bull sugar became vote water. And I think that really got the organizations going. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a difference in, in the bird population and the bird life back there by chance? Well, the, the numbers are down. I think they're a little up now compared to what they were for a while. But, right. but uh, yeah, the numbers are, you know, greatly greatly reduced. I used to see wood storks all the time. I, I don't remember the last time I saw a wood stork back there. I see here you have uh, spoonbill feathers in Herman's houseboat. Huh. What's that all about? Well, during the drug running days, uh, there was some drug running going on around Chukaluski and stuff, and Herman had his, I guess he took his houseboat up there, and they suspected that Herman turned them in because the couple of guys got caught so how would herman know what they were doing just seeing them run at night and stuff i guess right. i guess uh, or listening to them on the radio on on their special channels because uh, herman knew them you know right. he knew a lot of them but one day he gets a knock on the houseboat and it's some federal guys they said we we heard you're collecting feathers for sale and they went into the hold of his houseboat and there were some a whole bunch of spoonbill feathers well somebody had shot were some they protected at the time oh school? oh sure they sure they were uh and they so he had a lot of explaining to do and he eventually talked his way out of it because you know herman had a reputation he wasn't uh he wasn't gonna. What was he doing with spoonbill feathers? 
That's what they asked him. He says, I didn't put him there. No, somebody. Oh, got he got him, set they, up from the he drug guys. He got set up from the drug guys. When he was out fishing guy. one day. Yeah, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, so, so uh, he, he didn't know what he was going to do, but he was able to talk his way out of it. When did, um, when did that era of the drug running um was it pretty vibrant when you were fishing with Herman back then? I in think that day? it was sort sort of towards the end when I started fishing. With right. It was still going on, but sort of toward towards the end of it. I I don't know too much about it. Yeah. Do you see any uh, of the square groupers back in the Everglades or no, in, the, in the Gulf by chance? No, no, no. I've seen them in the ocean when I when you ocean got... fished, but I haven't seen any in the. Uh, in the glades. Once you uh, once you found out what the Everglades was all about, did you stop your oceanside fishing? Uh, did you sell that yeah, boat? Yeah, yeah. I sold <laughs> I sold the boat and I got that aluminum the aluminum boat and I had a I had a bone fisher for a while. Yeah, I, I went I went back country. I used to fish with John Dudas, you know, kite fishing because his mate was a good friend of mine. Right. And Dudas would take us out every Christmas Eve. He'd go out with his friends on a fun trip and go out catching you know kite fishing sure so i learned how to do all that yeah. stuff but but once i got into backcountry fishing and uh, you know i didn't want to do anything else would you consider yourself a, a real pioneer of the everglades we know no, herman was i I, I don't know whether i'd consider him i opened up a lot of areas that he didn't fish he didn't fish you know right. but uh I'm an explorer of the Everglades. Right. You know? I, well, don't know, I don't know whether I'd consider myself a pioneer. Uh, but the fact that I continued going back there, I think, encouraged other people right. to want to learn that area and go, go back there. So maybe... You took the knowledge from, from Herman and, and pursued yeah, it. Right. And, and, uh, but do you think that that kind of type of fishing is a dying breed? You're seeing a lot of these canals, these tight... Uh, channels well, that mangroves are, are starting to uh, overgrow and, and block. Do you think that that passion to go deeper and further? Well, you know, like I went uh, about a month ago with this guy, uh, and we went to a place called East River, East River Rookery. And I could tell nobody's been there for I don't know how long because it was all growing in. And I broke, you know, I broke through the mangroves and. And I was, a, I was able to get in and we saw, you know, what we used to see. I mean, yeah, I think uh, I think guys are going back there, but I don't think they're expanding. They find a place where they're comfortable fishing and that's where they'll fish. They're not so they're venturing no deep into the right. Everglades. So you're a dying and breed. There's a lot of opportunity there to do it, but, you know, it's tough. You know, it's you know a guide can't take all his clients back there. You have to you have to take an accomplished angler back there to fish, because otherwise all they'd be doing is pulling plugs and lures out of trees all day. Right. Because it's a real tight, tight. area to fish. I, I I took a friend back there, uh, Ben Monroe, from Colorado. He was a fly fisherman. He didn't spin fish or plug fish or anything like that. I didn't know what I was going to do, but it was amazing how he did back there. I mean, he 
you know, back change cast, the angle up, back cast up in the air, and then cast down and roll cast. I mean, he was incredible, and we caught we caught so many fish on fly. But it's a difficult area. I mean, you take right. the average fly caster. I mean, it's there's certain spots where you can do it, obviously, but. But he, he was uh, fabulous. I, that was a good day. Do you ever find any big tarpon back in there? No, I think, you know, 40, 50 pound. Maximum. Max, yeah. So it's almost like a nursery for a lot of yeah. fish. I mean, I one day, yeah, I took Dave Denkert and Mark Croker back there one day. That was a good I can't imagine that day. I thought there wasn't one fish that escaped. <laughs> Not one. I, I mean, know. They, no, they, they, were, deplete, they're they the were so deadly. I mean, there's one. And Mark, Mark has eyes like an eagle. I mean, I've never seen anybody with eyes like And that. how about his casting ability with his oh splashless cast, right? Yeah, I mean, they. I had so much fun that day because, you know, uh, when you get good anglers back there, you could have a you could have a great day. I guess there's not you have to worry about feeding the fish. What you just show show them the bug and they're gonna bite. Yeah, it. they're you know those fish will eat back mm -hmm. there because you know uh, I mean you go back there. Uh, sometimes you don't see any bait. Sometimes you'll see big schools of mahara. And when you find that, you're in heaven because you know around the corner there's going to be some big snook. Right. Because they love Mahara. I'm just trying to take a look here. Maybe look at something that we haven't covered. Uh, when I was telling you about Ted and uh, Flip, Ted. Jurassic, I mean, they, uh, I mean uh, Ted Jurassic yeah, and yeah. Flip. Right. They wanted to let me know that they were learning, learning that place. So Ted went to the trouble, made all these aluminum signs, you know, with, and numbered them and put them out there in various positions, but in no order. You know, he'd put 16 here, three here, two over here. And he figured I'd go out there and try to figure out what in the hell are those, you know. But I knew there's only one person that would go to all that trouble. It, it was a joke Joe, on you. It was a, it was a <laughs> joke on me, and I, and I knew it. So what did I do? I did what I did with the... Those red tapes, pull them all, pull, pull them all off, and I'm going to show them at, uh, at when I get at the Circle of Honor. I'm going to, I'm going to bring. I gave one to Flip, and I'm going to show it when I get to Circle of Honor. It, it was quite funny. Um, who's the next Crusader that's going to take take on your role I and, don't keep, know. and keep those uh, waterways open? I don't know. Are you worried about the future? Of that fishery? Well, I mean, I'm not worried about it. I, I'd like to see uh, people keeping it open, but I don't know. I don't know who would do it. The guides don't have time to do it, I don't think. You think a lot yeah. of these little nooks and crannies that you created are going to go away? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Is that sad for you? Yeah. Yeah, it is because it's so beautiful back there, so quiet and tranquil that that I hate, hate not to have, be able to see other people enjoying it. Right, because you know? you're 79, yeah. turning 80 very soon. Yep. When you look back, what what comes to mind? I've been very lucky. I was lucky to have a, a wife, an understanding wife, who let me from a young age fish two, sometimes three days a week. You know, I've got, I had a great profession, which it enabled me to do 
Mm-hmm. A lot of the things I do, I'm able to go to North Carolina for six months. I'm a, a nomad. I here in Miami, you know, three days right. a week and four days a week. Then I go down the Keys three days a week. You know, I have the best of every world, and I just feel great family, kids, grandkids. Mm-hmm. I'm just fortunate to have been able to do it. If you would have asked me, when I was 35 years, when I was 35 years old, I found out I had a heart defect, and I had to have open heart surgery. So, and that's the time when I was starting to make a decent income. And uh, so that's why we're still in the house, because if something happened, I didn't want to buy a bigger home because if something happened to me, my wife wouldn't be able to pay the mortgage and she'd have to move. Sure. But this home was, you know, basically paid off. So I stayed here and instead bought a place in the, in the Keys. In the Keys. So we had a second home mm-hmm. in the Keys. So that's why we're still here and we're happy here. We have a, we, your- we built it into a nice, nice comfortable place to stay well obviously your heart is filled with uh, a passion for fishing Uh, you're being honored this spring by the BTT organization what are you most proud of I'm most proud of my accomplishment what I accomplished with the park Uh, I'm proud of the tournament I started Herman Lucerne Memorial which in the beginning was problematical because we gave money to the park and a lot of the guides at that time resented the park because the park wasn't putting money into the park and fixing it up you know the docks and things Mm -hmm. like that but they didn't have the understanding that the superintendent had to work with the funds that were allotted to the park right and he couldn't just go up there and say i need a million dollars i want to do this it didn't happen that way so we used to take the funds and give it to the park for navigation markers to, you know, to repair the docks so the boats don't go under the docks. We did made a lot of improvements in the park. But the, it was difficult to get people to understand that, mm-hmm. you know, that it's not the park. It's the funding that they get, that they needed money to, to, do, those, to do those things. And then as we went along, then we saw that the biggest problem in the park right now is water quality, not the docks or the navigation markers or anything. So we started directing our funds towards clean water. Right. Uh, and I, I'm proud of everything I did, you know, towards clean water, the kayak paddle areas, pull troll zones, you know, uh, keeping them on just in snake bite, not making them throughout the bay like they mm-hmm. like they planned and where there was a entrance because of my relationship with the superintendent where you had a where you had a pole or troll through seven feet of water to get to this area i said that's ridiculous it should be an idle zone mm-hmm. so they made it an idle zone so behind the scenes uh, you know i'm proud of a lot of accomplishments right. that, that i made well i think there's two things you've uh You've passed on uh, Herman Lucerne's legacy. You lived his legacy. And in doing so, you've improved your life uh, with the great outdoors and with the Everglades. And therefore, we're all, uh, we're all better because of you. 
Well, I wish I could go back to the days when Herman and I are in the boat coming home and drinking our Grand McNish in, the, <laughs> in a bottle of uh, soda water. That uh, that was traditional, uh, having the scotch on the way home. And we, we, yeah, I miss that man terribly, and we had some great time. I, now I'm able to talk about him without crying, but there was a time I couldn't. Yeah, well, congratulations. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. We are so honored to have you, uh, uh, as is uh, all the fishing community. Thank I, you. I'm honored to have you here, and I think what you're doing with these Millhouse podcasts is history. You're creating history, things that should be remembered. I thank you. applaud you for that. Thank you. We're honored, believe me. This spring, 2023, Lloyd Rubel will be receiving the Flat Stewardship Award from the conservation organization, Bonefish Tarpon Trust. This honor is bestowed upon him for his lifelong devotion to the Everglades and his efforts towards preserving its access and his conservation efforts. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon. Just a ride Just a ride